0: You're listening to The Exhibitionist Podcast, hosted by Nicola Reader and brought to you by InspiringExhibitors.com and ProExtra, a wholly owned subsidiary of Twelve Man Solutions Limited. Hi there and welcome to episode 23 of The Exhibitionist Podcast. We are recording this on a beautiful bank holiday Monday, so I hope you are having a good chance to relax in this brilliant sunshine we've got. On today's episode, we are bringing you our conversation with Daniel Priestley, who, as you may remember from a few weeks ago, I had read his book On Holiday and was really inspired by some of his thinking around nailing your proposition, which is so important for trade shows. So that conversation is coming up shortly. But one thing I just wanted to touch on before we get to that conversation with Daniel was what is the point of exhibitor training? And it's something that's come up for us in a couple of guest blogs that we've written for various organisations over the last couple of weeks, where really people are saying, well, what is exhibitor training and why is it important? And as it's kind of the heart of what we do, we thought let's tell you a little bit more about it. Well, exhibitor training, if you're an event organisation, an event company, is kind of a no brainer, really, because the latest UFI. Um, insight shows that if you offer exhibitor training to your clients, your customers, your exhibitors, the likelihood is that your net promoter score is going to increase. What does that mean in English? Well, it basically means that those exhibitors are going to have a better experience. They're going to talk about it to their network. They're going to talk about it more positively and the benefits that they got from the show. And therefore that may mean that you get. Higher rebook rates, but also a wider pool of people within your existing exhibitors network who are interested in exhibiting at your show. And actually, some of that same insight that was done um, in association with Explory as well um, was looking at what visitor satisfaction scores were coming in and what visitors were rating as important when they come to a show. And we hear this phrase festivalisation an awful lot, and we know event organisers are looking for great content and looking for different ways to bring that content to life to create experiences for visitors through different mediums. But actually, some of the research shows that the quality of exhibitors is still is what is driving mainly visitor satisfaction. It's about well-prepared exhibitors who have a relevant and engaging product that's delivered by a team of people who know what their business is all about, know what problems that they can solve, and come across professionally in an engaging way. So actually, that's what visitors still want. So even though all that content is great around the edges, brilliant quality exhibitors is what visitors are looking for. So that kinds to help build the picture of why exhibitor training is important. So you might still be thinking, what is exhibitor training? What do you actually do? So for us, when we're working with private clients or with organisations like the Energy Industry Council or the Department for International Trade, we can do it in a number of ways. It could be coaching and mentoring one-to-one support via video conference or telecons where we can just talk through some of the ideas and the plans and the roadblocks that you're coming across as an exhibitor and how you get the rest of your team on board. We can do webinars or we can go right through to doing full day workshops where we'll go through the whole process of working on the stand. So one piece of insight is that 85% of the success of your stand of your show is down to your staff. So as much time and effort and money as you might put into your stand design, your pre-show marketing, making sure you're at the right show in the first place, actually the fundamental point is your stand on the day, on the show, being able to have those relevant, engaging conversations. Your stand is what starts the conversation, but your staff and your stand squad are what lead that conversation on to understanding whether you have things in common and that's likely to lead to a business transaction. So that's kind of the reason why exhibitor training is important. So in our workshops, we'll take people through looking at who have you got in your stand squad? So have you got Wallflower Wilmers? Have you got Hard Cell Hanks? None of those are right or wrong, but it's thinking about what is the makeup of our team? Where have we got vulnerabilities? Where have we got strengths? How do we balance that on the day? We also look at opening lines. So how do you start those conversations in an engaging and relevant way? That means you can identify some of those time wasters quickly and move them along remember that point we've talked about before that 16 to 20 percent of all visitors to a show will be in a position to buy from you so you kind of want to wheedle out those 80 percent that are relevant for somebody else but not for you very quickly and move them along and we'll also look at filtering visitors and we'll look at how do you understand who your time wasters are and who your high value prospects are and one company that we worked with this year who we took through that exact process with 15 of their sales teams Uh, before the show have come back to tell tell us now that after the show they have had 50 percent higher quality leads from that show than they would have done previously so they had fewer leads coming out of the show but they had 50 percent higher contact leads that means leads that actually have led to a sale and that's because they were aligned behind the smart objectives knew what the team was trying to achieve and went out and delivered it So it just seemed relevant seeing though a few organisations have said to us, can you just write us something about why exhibitor training is important because I'm not sure people get it yet, but hopefully if you're an event organiser, you can understand how it will really help your net promoter scores. If you're an exhibitor, you can help see how it could help you overcome some of the challenges and obstacles and some of the battles that you're having and how actually ultimately delivering that exhibitor training helps you generate better quality leads that are more likely to deliver some stronger returns for you. And speaking of that, we've got a whole week out on the road this week delivering uh, exhibitor training for different people heading off in uh, September and October for their shows. So we are really looking forward to working with you this week if you're on our agenda. So that's it from me for now. I am going to hand over to our conversation with Daniel, which I really enjoyed. And I think from this one, you will get a lot more inspiration than just trade shows. You'll actually learn a few things that will hopefully help you in wider aspects of your business. So enjoy the show. So on this week's episode of the Exhibitionist podcast, we are delighted to have joining us entrepreneur, best-selling author, speaker, co-founder and CEO of uh, Dent Global, Daniel Priestley. So Daniel, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thank you. And as our listeners will know, I referred to your book a couple of weeks ago as it had been my um, inspirational holiday read that I'd had a couple of weeks ago on a beach in Portugal. Sure. Which,
1: which one did you read?
0: I read Key Person of Influence. So oh, very,
1: very I've good. worked that my way one, through that. The other one that's relevant for you guys is Oversubscribed, which is very much that kind of marketing book and I think it I, I think it even mentions exhibitions in that um, in that book too
0: yeah absolutely that was the first purchase I made when I came back from holiday so you're pleased That's to know kind of, I've done the KPI stuff and now we're on to oversubscribe so um
1: I'm
0: so excited to have you here I did mention on the show that we were going to try and get you on so um I know you are a busy man so thank you so much for making time to,
1: to speak my pleasure
0: so Daniel, for people who um, don't know kind of your work and what you've been involved in, can you just give us a quick bit of context and background on your journey?
1: Yeah, so uh, my background is as an entrepreneur. I started a uh, company when I was age 21 and it was actually very much around running events. And um, uh, we, we did things like exhibits, but we also hosted out and ran our own events um, that business in Australia uh, got quite big quite fast. So within a first, first year it was um, a $1.3 million revenue business and then it grew very quickly and we ended up being over $10 million in sales uh, within, I think, year four. Um, so it was quite a very fast growth uh, company. Um, when I got out of that business, I came to the UK when I was 26 and, um, and launched another uh, business here in the UK in London um, which uh, which has grown and evolved into an accelerator, uh, which we do run a lot of events as well. Um, and uh, nine years on, uh, we have offices in Australia, Singapore, UK, Canada, USA, um, where we take uh, now 3,000 companies through a process of um, becoming a key person of influence and getting oversubscribed.
0: Fantastic. So amazing growth there that I know a lot of our uh, listeners and businesses um, listening to will be thinking, yeah, that's that's what I want for for my business. But we have listeners who are both um, entrepreneurs and working on their own business as the owner, but we've got people also who are employed and working maybe in marketing or events teams for organizations. So is there a benefit to being a key person of influence,
1: regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're employed by an organization? Yeah, the the benefit's always there. So every industry revolves around key people of influence, whether it be in corporate or entrepreneurship or politics um, or in charity. Uh, It's always the same few names that keep coming up in conversation and you want to be one of those names. Um, And if you think about from any context, it's those people who get invited to speak. Uh, It's those people who who get presented with deals uh, first uh, it's those people who attract talent around them, who want to work with them. So, for lots of reasons, you want to build a profile, you want to be known for a niche, um, and uh, and to kind of just become that key person of influence within within that niche.
0: And how might you approach that differently if you were, say, an owner of a business versus somebody who's working inside an organisation?
1: Yeah, so the, I suppose the benefit of being an owner of a business is you don't really need to get permission to try any crazy <laughs> ideas. The downside is that you're probably going to try crazy ideas that you should have uh, talked to someone about first. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a there's a real corporate culture. It's almost a default that everyone stays faceless and that you stay behind the scenes and you hide behind the corporate branding. Um, and people who break that rule, you know, with... with um, you know, with, uh, you know, some elegance to it. But people who break that rule tend to do very, very well um, just simply because they become standout people. Their name gets circulated around the organisation as a bit of a mover and shaker, and then they attract um, deals. So even in large organisations, you know, I've worked with KPMG, for example, there are certain partners and and people throughout the organisation who raise their profile, who, who get known for things, who host events and dinners, um and they become you know the center of a network and very rapidly they uh, they become rainmakers within their organization as well and i guess just leading on from that you never know what the future
0: holds and actually so many people build some experience in corporate world and then decide to go and go it alone and if you're well known that's in your good, industry
1: yeah. that's got to help if you. you if you raise your profile you also get headhunted um and you get offered great opportunities and that's always a good thing you know it's a demand and supply game so if multiple companies want you to work for their organization then um you know your value goes up um there is no inherent value in any particular person it's a demand and supply game so um so even if you think about your own labor or your skill set as a product um ultimately the value of that product is about demand and supply so if you're head of learning and development for an organization Uh, you get really well-known because you're writing in the media and you're uh, building an Instagram profile and you're giving talks. Um, Suddenly, you know, all four of the big four accounting firms want you to come and work with them. Your price just went up. Um, So it's it's a powerful strategy uh, if you are working within corporate as well to position as a key person of influence and get oversubscribed
0: absolutely absolutely so thinking about um events live events and exhibitions which is mainly where we work and where our our listeners work um how have you seen people use things like conferences or exhibitions to build their influence and and build their profile within an industry
1: yeah well look I'll start by saying how how it's how I see people not doing it well (laughs) okay so so I see people um turning up And essentially standing on their stand and expecting people to come up and talk to them and and get ready to pull the credit card out or, you know, fill in the purchase order form. Um, And then they end up very disappointed that that doesn't work. And like anything, um, it works if you work it. So um, like a CRM system, you can put a CRM system into your business and have it completely sit there and not add any value or you can put a CRM system in and have it become the backbone of your organisation and, it, you know, it's totally transformational. So it works if you work it. So um, when I see companies that do really well at exhibitions, they do things like uh, take speaking spots as well as stands um, so that they position themselves as a key person of influence by having one of the speakers on the on the stage. Um, and obviously with those type of events now, there's multiple stages Um Uh, that you can be uh, you can be speaking on Uh, they engage on social media before during and after the um, conference so you know they find find out what are the hashtags they look at people who are checking in by location Um, they message them using social media saying hey we're at stand 403 why don't you come across and have a chat Um, we'd love to meet you Um, they follow up after the event um, you know, saying hey, we missed you at uh, at the event. Saw that you were tweeting about the event. Um, would love to uh, continue the conversation. Um, so they do that. They they get photos of themselves speaking and they post it on Instagram and perhaps a video and they post that on YouTube. Um, so those are those are some of the ways where you can start working an exhibition um, to really become the key person of influence at that exhibition. Become the bell of the ball. Uh, if uh, if you can at the exhibition, the other thing that we've done, you know, some successful things that we've done. Um, let let me let me mention why exhibitions can work against you, and then I'll talk about how you can combat that. So one of the reasons exhibitions can work against you is because, from the consumer's point of view, the person who walks into the exhibition, they are suddenly spoiled for choice. They have three hundred exhibitors to look at. So their experience is there's one of me and there's 300 of you to go and uh, have a look at. So they suddenly feel like they're massively oversupplied with options. Um the for the person who's exhibiting you might normally throughout day to day feel like you've got lots and lots of people to talk to and you you know you're Um, you know, you're really special at what you do. And then suddenly you go to an exhibition, an industry exhibition, and there's 20 other companies that do similar things to you. And you think, oh, wait a second, we don't feel very special anymore because we're in close proximity um, to, uh, to 20 other companies that do similar things to us. So the demand and supply tension within that micro environment, the demand and supply tension isn't the same as it is in the normal environment outside of that event. So, what you have to do is somehow rectify the demand and supply tension within that environment. So, you've got to create scenarios where people are really singling you out as the most important exhibitor of the show. Um, uh, so, anything at all you can do that creates uh, people almost lining up um, to see your um, exhibit, all of that sort of stuff. One of the things we did at one show. Was we got these really bright red bags with um, key person of influence and and an arrow pointing up at the person holding the bag, Uh, and in the bag we had a free copy of the book key person of influence and all of our dates and our pens and all that sort of stuff. And on the earliest part of the very first day, we um, uh, each day we made sure that hundreds of people got got this bag, so that all day people are walking around. With a bag that says "Key Person of Influence," and it was massively oversized. It was too big, you know. It was only for a book, but we had the big red bag um, that people could could um, could walk around with, and um, and then people would come up to our stand, going, "Oh, is this where I get the Key Person of Influence bag?" Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and it basically created a steady stream of like little people walk. People were walking around advertising us the whole the whole day. Um, just by carrying the bag um, <laughs> you know, so that was that was a great strategy. The other thing that we would do is um, if i 've got a speaking slot i would we would promote i 'd have a speaking slot in the afternoon and we would promote all day this is the speak this is the speak we have little cards three p m daniel daniel 's speaking these are the key points he 's covering um, here you know he, this is where it is go go and see him speak um, and then I might have 80 people who come into that auditorium at that time and speak, and then what I will do is I'll say um, we're over at stand 403, which is here, and I'll put it up on my slides. I'll say anyone who goes over there, we've we've got a free copy of the book, Key Person of Influence, so that you can come along and swap your business card for a book um, at our stand, and then you can you can uh, get that. But we only have, say, 50 or 100 copies of the book, so make sure you do that in the next you know, hour or so before we run out. So I deliver a presentation, lots of value, uh, and then tell people, go, go across and get the key person of influence book. And then what will happen typically is pretty much within the first 20, 30 minutes, lots of people go wandering up to the stand. And now we've got a a lineup of eight, eight to 10 people standing in front of the stand, waiting to talk to us and waiting to, to do something. And that, everyone who wasn't at my talk suddenly comes up and says, well, what's going on over here? Yeah, yeah.
0: It's funny, I say it so often in podcasts, but if people could see me, I'm literally sat on the other side of the video screen, just like a nodding dog going, yes, and that, and that. That's the important bit. So um, a few things just to kind of pick up on there, really. You were talking about speaking slots, and that's definitely where we would say to a lot of exhibitors and clients we work with, nailing that speaking slot's really, really important. Quite a lot of people say to us, but I don't have anything to say. Why would people want to listen to me? What is it? So where do those kind of nervous speakers start thinking about how do I pull together some kind of presentation? What is it that I got that that is worth listening to? Where did you start?
1: Uh, Well, where I started was introducing other speakers. So I would, um, in the early days, I would have other professional speakers who came and gave talks and I would um, top and tail the talk. So I would introduce them for four or five minutes at the beginning and then host the Q&A section at the end. That gave me a little bit of confidence being up on on stage in front of people. Um, And then there came a day where one of our speakers, uh, his father had a heart attack and had to go to hospital uh, an hour before the talk. And he actually said, Daniel, you know the talk better than just as well as I do, because I've been hearing it every night for the last 10 nights. He said, uh, here's the slide presentation, you give the talk. and uh and and it was kind of like oh okay i got thrown into the deep end and sure enough it was just fine and um that year i gave 174 talks wow. because once i knew i could do it i uh, i did three a week
0: yeah it's never as scary as you think it's going to be is it once you're up there and doing it if
1: you know your stuff it's well a key idea for me is that i always think i always the thing that i always think and i've given talks in front of two to three thousand people at a time um and I always think it doesn't matter how many people are in the audience. Everyone's only got two eyes and two ears. So each person is experiencing something from their own personal subjective experience. So essentially it doesn't matter that there's 2,000 people. 2,000 people is what I'm seeing, but each person's only seeing me as just one, as Mm -hmm. one-to-one. So so as soon as I kind of, in my mind, that, that tricks my brain into thinking that no matter how many people I'm talking to, I'm just talking to one person at a time. Um, So it kind of that, for whatever reason, that thought works for me. Um, But look, the other thing people can do uh, is they can hire a speaker. So, um, you know, find someone who's a key person of influence, say to them, we're exhibiting at the show. They've offered us a speaking uh, slot. Would you like to be our speaker? Um, we'll, We'll present you. And all you have to do is, you know, I mean, Obviously, find the speaker who's going to, who's essentially going to cast you in a good light. Um, so if you, you know, if you, um, uh, you know, have accounting services, find an entrepreneur who's happy to speak and talk about the power of knowing your numbers, and um, you know, and get them to wear your shirt or, or you know, have your your branding all over the slides, um, and make sure that they invite people back to your stand. Um, the other thing you can do, much much smaller example is you can buy an audio kit uh, with two microphones and while you're at the exhibit, uh, conduct some podcasts with potential clients and clients and ask people and just say, look, we're, we're recording a podcast series. We'd love to ask you three or four questions about, um, about uh, you know, how you use this particular type of software. Um, you know, uh, can we ask you a few questions and, and get you on our podcast? And you, you can just wander around doing sound bites, and that is quite engaging with people. Or people can come to your stand and do a little sound bite on the stand. You know, having things for people to engage with, um, especially anything that is helped, you know, an exhibition is a great place to start building a digital library. Um, so you can build audio, you can build video, you can do vox pops, you can interview people on the spot. All of that kind of stuff makes the exhibit um it turns the, exi- the exhibit into a long-term asset versus a one-off yeah absolutely and i think that digital library then is a
0: great way of following up with people afterwards because when you've got all those leads from a trade show and you're thinking how oh, on earth are we going to talk about actually you can send them the podcast or you can send them the bit of video and say Hey, yeah. yeah, this is what we recorded at the show this is what we looked like this was a great speech you might have missed and it gives you a reason to talk to somebody that's more than just saying do you now want to buy our product so yeah kind of great way of, of doing that so we talked a lot about people being key person of influence in their industry, and, and the book made sense to me and I understood kind of how you'd go about doing that. Question I had for you, can businesses be key businesses of influence, and if so, how do they
1: start doing that? Um, it's harder because the human brain is built to understand faces and people, and um, a business is a fictitious idea. It's, a, it's essentially it's the name of the tribe. So if you think about you know, humans being tribal creatures, um, it's essentially giving, name, giving a name to the tribe. So Chelsea yeah. Football Club is the name of a tribe of, you know, some footballers and their fans. But ultimately, if you take away all the footballers and you take away all the fans, then it doesn't really mean anything. It's just the name of the tribe. So IBM, Microsoft, uh, Apple, it's the name of the tribe. So, um, so <clears throat> businesses can... Attempt to be businesses of influence by producing great quality content and thought leadership, and releasing books and publications. Um, you know, releasing research, offering um, great products and gifts, and all of those sorts of things. But ultimately, I don't think it's worth dancing around the fact that um, faceless organisations massively get outperformed by organisations that have great people front and centre. Um, you know, there's a reason that Apple does so well, and part of the reason is the products but part of the reason is that they've always had a philosophy of putting the CEO on the stage yeah you know so Steve Jobs was fabulous at getting out and demoing the product and and actually showing this is what Apple products are all about and he put a lot of thought and care and attention into doing that and he scripted it word for word and he rehearsed and he got up on stage and he actually was the face of the brand and then when he passed the mantle on to Tim Cook Tim Cook is an operations guy. He's a a numbers guy. He's he's not a flamboyant speaker. Um, He's not someone who naturally is outspoken or any of those sorts of things. You can tell that about him. But he knew that if he was taking the job of CEO, he had to put his face on the brand, that Apple could not be a faceless brand because it's not in the DNA of Apple to be a faceless brand. So, you know, he, he worked on his skills of presenting from stage and uh, And being the the face of uh, Apple, and it's just part of the job of being CEO. hes he represents the brand, he represents the values of, of Apple. And if you compare face uh, brands that have a face versus brands that don't have a face, there is no comparison. you know um, mm-hmm. Tesla massively outperforms faceless car companies. Apple outperforms faceless phone companies, so it's um, you know as much as businesses would love me to say oh yeah it's fine just be a faceless corporation um I, I hate to say it but actually it's a um it's a it's a third place move not a first place move
0: absolutely and I think um, having worked both in the corporate side and as a entrepreneur in my own business I can definitely see the benefits for, for building your influence and I know a lot of smaller entrepreneurs that, that we work with are sometimes quite scared about, well, what does that mean? And, and I have to put my opinion out there. And I think sometimes it's just thinking about, well, what is your sphere of influence? And if you're a, a farm shop owner and you just want to be the influencer in your village, you want to be the person that people go to to know what's the best meat, what's the best veg, and, and that helps you grow your business and people are coming to you, then then that's big enough for your sphere of influence. It's kind of understanding what your audience is, what your population is and who you need to influence to grow. You don't have to influence everybody. It's understanding,
1: I think. Look, being a key person of influence is not about being famous. Exactly. So, So a famous person is someone who is in the spotlight. A key person of influence is someone who shines the spotlight on something. Um, And a famous person is, is, you know, you think about famous people as being famous to millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people. key person of influence might be influential to a 1,000 or 10,000 people. Um, So the difference between being in the spotlight versus shining the spotlight on something, I personally hate, hate the idea of me being in the spotlight. Like I, um, I despise narcissists and I despise people who want attention for attention's sake. But I'm personally really passionate about the entrepreneur revolution and I'm personally passionate about um, entrepreneurs selecting a United Nations global goal and aligning their business to something that would make an impact. So if you invite me to come and speak, I hate the idea of speaking about myself. I love the idea of talking about entrepreneurship, the entrepreneur mm. journey, marketing, um, and aligning your business to a, a, a cause. And as long as I'm shining the spotlight on something that I'm passionate about, I feel really comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, and I'm like everyone else. As soon as you want to put the spotlight on me, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's pretty irrelevant. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be famous. I'm trying to get people to take a look at something. Yeah. Um, so that's, if that helps, that, that's that key idea. Don't try and be in the spotlight. Try and become the spotlight. Put the spotlight on something.
0: Fantastic soundbite and, and does make perfect sense about that kind of, you know, Without with what we're trying to do with our business, it's about here's some expertise and some thoughts and some advice from around an industry that might help you. We're not the people who get it right all the time or, or you know, the, the ultimate knowledge. We're just people who are trying to bring some content and some advice to life. So um, one of the things I wanted to touch on briefly was um, in Key Person of Influence, I thought that um, comments about pitching and about how important that pitch is and being able to get your your proposition down to a really tight uh, brief was really important. Never more so than exhibitions when you've maybe got 30 seconds to convey what it is you you do, but actually the benefit that that brings to somebody else. What would your advice be for exhibitors who are thinking about firming up their pitch?
1: Such a great question because at the exhibition, it's that really kind of raw environment where people say, what do you do? and they they give you 20 to 30 seconds to to say it. So the first thing is plan and prepare and script and make sure everyone who's going to be involved in the exhibition has got the script down. Um, For a bigger company, doing something like um, uh, pitch practice or pitch training the week before and having a little competition um, where, um, like, pitch for 20 pounds, where essentially everyone has to learn the pitch and then you pick up the phone and, if someone can go through the full 30-second pitch without stuttering or stammering, they get £20. That will actually pay big dividends the week later at the event to make sure that every single person has the pitch uh, down. So a 30-second pitch, here's a format, one format that I really like, which is name, same, uh, claim to fame, aim and a game. Oh, okay. (laughs) So name is your name and the company name. I'm Daniel Priestley. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Dent Global, right? So that's that's name. Same. So give it to people in a really, really simple, basic, easy to understand way. Um, We do training programs for entrepreneurs who have businesses between $100,000 and 5 million in revenue. Right? So that's same. Uh, Claim to fame. Um, I've written four best selling books. We have offices all over the world and we work with entrepreneurs who have built and sold companies worth tens of millions of pounds to deliver the training. All right, so that's a claim to fame. Um, uh, aim is what are you hoping to do in the next 90 days? Um, so, in the next 90 days, we have an event on September the 10th for 300 entrepreneurs uh, in conjunction with Imperial College London. Uh, called Become a Key Person of Influence. So that's AIM. Um, and big game is we are really focused at getting entrepreneurs to stand out, scale up and align their business to a United Nations global goal so they can make a big impact in the world. So that's name, same. So what is the, your name and the business name? Same, what are you the same as? Put yourself in a box, claim to fame, blow yourself out of the box. Um, AIM, what do you want to do in the next 90 days? Game. What's the big picture? Yeah. And, and if you rehearse that correctly, you can actually get all of that information in 20 to 30 seconds.
0: Yeah, which is a, a brilliant and simple formula. I love the idea about everybody go, getting on the phone and trying to deliver it and, um, and getting 20 quid if you do it right.
1: Yeah, so for big organisations, we've done this thing where we do pitch for an iPad. And pitch for an iPad is that um, we teach the pitch and then um, we go through and actually do... Uh, a phone call to everyone in the following couple of days and they have to deliver it. And then the best ones go through to the final round where we go and do, you know, um, the call through and the best one from that second call through wins an iPad. Yeah. Um, So that's one way to do it where it's a bit more hunger games. (laughs) Pitch for 20 pounds is something or pitch for for a tenner is also just a really nice, easy, if you get it right, you get 10 pounds guaranteed.
0: Yeah. And, and I know um, there may be some of our listeners who are screaming at, at this now saying, but you always tell us not to sell at exhibitions and trade shows. You tell us not to just come out with the, the sales pitch. And actually, what was brilliant about the sales pitch idea that you've just given it is that if, you, if you've done all that pre-show marketing, you're at the right show, you know who's coming to your stand, you've already attracted the right people. That's what they want to hear. That's not somebody random coming up just saying, you know, I've just happened to fall across you. What is it that you do? That's somebody who you've given five or six different bits of contact and communication over the weeks before the show to say, come to us and we'll show you what we do and this is our question. Yeah. And that's what they're ready to
1: hear that at that point. So, yeah. And also a good answer to the question, what do you do here, is, um, is also not necessarily selling, right? So if you're giving in that... In that example name same claim to fame aim and a game you're giving people um enough you're throwing enough out there that people can either talk to you about your big game they could talk to you about what you're up to in the next 90 days they could talk to you about what makes you famous yeah. They could ask some questions so you're just kind of giving people a mosaic of information in 30 seconds that they can either engage with or disengage with yeah
0: and if somebody says to you what is it that you do they're absolutely giving you permission to tell them what yeah. you do, because that's what they've just asked for. So yeah,
1: exactly. you, you're kind of meeting their and, needs. And, so. and the thing that frustrates people is, uh, so tell me, what do you do? Well, as little as possible, really. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. Okay.
1: That's Trying nice. to be funny. What do, you, what do you do? We're accountants, but don't hold that against us. Yeah. Uh, okay. But like, what do you do? Oh, we align spines with the divine and make people feel fine. Uh, what is that? (laughs) What does that mean? You're a chiropractor. Okay, great. You're a chiropractor. So people come up with these kind of quirky, weird answers to that. And it's like, just, just give it to me straight. What do you, what is it you do? I'm not going to be rude to you, but I may or may not be interested in that. That's the other thing. Like get over the idea that everyone's going to be interested. You know, you you could honestly, there's that little um, Facebook post doing the rounds or Instagram post doing the rounds, which is um, you could be the world's most juicy peach, and some people don't like peaches.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's you know, sixteen to twenty percent is the stat that we usually use for the percentage of visitors that will actually be in a position to buy from you. Eighty percent are just time wasted. So
1: yeah, or, you know, or they've already got a solution in place that they're happy with, or they're selling something similar. Yeah. yeah. So you know, we we did some we crunched some numbers the other day and. Um, we generate 25 leads for every sale. So, um, wow. on average, on average, when we actually look at how many leads come in, um, that could be people who download reports, it could be people who um, uh, respond to some of our online marketing materials. But we generate 25 leads for each sale. Um, so, 24 out of 25 people don't buy from us. Yeah. And they've engaged with us in some way on, online. Yeah. And actually, we've built a massively successful global business around failing 24 out of 25 times.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's the point you make throughout a number of your books is that, you, you know,
1: you, you're not
0: going to sell to every single person that you ever market to. But, but Coca-Cola no, so. don't sell to every single person they market to. And they're one of the biggest yeah, brands I mean, in the world.
1: Well, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great um that's a great example. I haven't personally bought a can of Coca-Cola in, in probably a decade. I just don't drink the stuff. Um, I remember I used to drink Jack Daniels and Coke when I was in my early 20s <laughs> and going out to nightclubs, but I don't think I've actually bought Coca-Cola um, for for the best part of a decade. Um, but what's interesting is Coca-Cola is not losing sleep. Uh, they... You know, there are people who drink Coca-Cola and there are people who don't drink Coca-Cola and they're doing just fine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So conscious of your time, just a couple of quick questions I had um, on the end. I was really interested in um, a section of your book around implementation, not ideas, because there's a lot of service businesses that we work with um, who've got a lot of knowledge and experience, but actually what they're selling is doing the job for people. Um, so we give a lot away, uh, away a lot of free content we do podcasts we do blogs that kind of thing and then we know that when people need some help they'll come to us and, and trust us because they've seen that so can you just tell us a little bit more about how exhibitors can use that kind of implement, implementation not ideas approach in just starting to build relationship with well, this little show
1: yeah we talk about give ideas freely um, like really openly share the ideas and then charge for the implementation so um you know, let people know this is, this is the recipe. Um, If you want us to make it for you, come into the restaurant. Um, You know, so the, uh, you know, I see, so I see people doing, there's two big mistakes I see often. Number one, people who want to charge for ideas. They're like, you know, spend 500 pounds downloading my online e-course and get a set of videos that you could get for free on YouTube. Yeah, And it's like, You know, ever since TED.com started giving away the world's best talks for free, that kind of model died. Um, The idea that you could charge for information. I mean, you can go online and download the plans for a stealth bomber. Um, You know, so there's really no value now in information. Information is expected to be free. And people judge the quality of the information and then think, okay, because I've seen high quality information, I want to work with the company that produced it. So... Giving away the ideas is, uh, well, trying to sell the ideas is mistake number one um, because people are not interested in that anymore. Um, And then um, the other one is not giving ideas away but expecting people to just somehow magically be mind readers to know that you're (laughs) the best company because you've been around since 1844, you know, or, you know, we have an amazing brand. We sponsor the football. Um, It's like, yeah, I get that you sponsor the football, but people have no idea what the hell you'd actually do for them. Um, So, uh, you know, so giving away this is our opinion, this is our thought leadership, here's our views on Brexit, here's our views on globalising, here's our views on taking the business international, here's our views on franchising, here's our views on legally protecting the shareholders from this, Um, here's our views on tax uh, implications of blah, blah, blah. So whatever it is that you're out there, you know, implementing, Really go out and share, this is what we think about that. This is our views on it. Here's the problems that we see. Here's the mistakes people are running into. Here's the solutions that we think are viable. Um, Get your ideas into the marketplace. Let people fall in love with those ideas, those stories, those insights, and then they'll come beat the door down and say, can you come and help me with that? Because people are so time poor. Um, I mean, I personally know a 100 things that I could do for my business that would work. I just don't have time to do them all. And my my kingdom for good, decent suppliers who are well-priced and and who know what they're doing, you know, whenever I find someone who who can just do it for me, um, you know, I'm much much more inclined to just pay to have it done even though I know how to do it myself.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the point you make about getting your opinion out there, if you're a smaller business and you're maybe just starting on your own and thinking about where, where do I go, what do I say, there is this... Fear about well, what if my opinion's wrong? What if I get negative feedback about that? And we we've got a book out in the marketplace. We do fortnightly blogs, we're constantly up for kind of scrutiny by by clients and and the industry. But it's just our opinion. It's not the com- the whole conversation. It's our part of the conversation. It's our voice on the conversation. Yeah. That's all it is. You can agree with it or you can not agree with it. It's fine. We've been around doing exhibitions for thirty years, so we know some stuff. We're sharing it. Agree with it or don't agree with it. But it's just stuff that we want to put out there. That we Think it's
1: interesting. There'll be three types of people. There'll be people who disagree. There'll be people who go and do it themselves, and there'll be people who want to work with you. And that's just that's just the cost of doing bigger business. Yeah. Um, You know, I've I've uh, sold a lot of books, um, and I get some one and two star reviews, and people say I've heard all of that before. I don't like his writing style. Um, I don't like that he spelt the word hysterical wrong in page one eighty seven. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness, right? So, you know, like, get a life. But, um, but, but you know, that's one type of person. I also get people who say, I love this book. I went off and did everything myself um, and I implemented everything and, uh, and didn't work with, you know, not a client. I went and went and did yeah, loads. did myself. But the truth is that our business has grown exponential year on year for 10 years. We have a fabulous business and despite the fact that some people don't like what I have to say and some people go off and do it themselves, every year, you know, we grow. We massively grow because a big percentage of people read our stuff and say, can we do something together?
0: Yeah, and everybody works and learns differently and and, but I'm sure you get it. It amuses me still where people say, I've read your book but we still had a really not a great exhibition. It's like, well, did you do anything? Well, no, I didn't change anything but you had some great ideas and it's kind of like... If you read the book and don't do anything, but you thought the advice was good, I can't really help you with that. You
1: you're on your own, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well or, or or well, that's cool. We can you can just pay us and we'll implement it. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you've, had at, you've had a crack at doing it yourself. You're obviously busy. You're obviously um, you know, you're obviously focused on your highest value activities and, and and coordinating and running the whole exhibition isn't one of them. So why not just get us to come and do it all for you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, so our final question, really wrapping up the conversation, but in your experience of exhibitions that you've been to and when you've looked at exhibitors and you've walked that show floor, what are some of the things that you just think, exhibitors are just getting that wrong and it could be the, the kind of one little thing they need to change that could make a big impact on the success of their show?
1: Um, well, there's a lot of things. Standing around looking bored um, is the number one. Uh uh, there are s- certain exhibitors that I've seen recently that, um, and I know that, uh, it's even weird saying this, but I'm, I'm still seeing it, but um, having the pretty girl in uh, a short dress yeah. is like so 1975. Like uh, having promo girls on the stand is just completely, there are virtually no brands that's going to work for uh, anymore. You know, have knowledgeable, intelligent people who know the product and know the, you know, who know things about, you know, the the, the product. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 2019. Uh, the um, the yeah. Essentially, the other one too is letting the show wear you down. So you know, the show can go for three or four days and I get it by day three or four, you're over it. You're sick of talking about it. You're sick of hearing people about it. So rotate the team, Um, you know, uh, keep yourselves fresh, make sure that everyone's got some time booked off the day after the show or two days after the show so that they can, they know that they're going to get some downtime. Um, I, you know, I get that it's a long day and I get that you're bored and I get that you're sick of talking about the same thing over and over and over, but, you know, make sure that um, the team is prepared for it, they're mentally prepared for it, um, and, that the, you know, they're incentivized to do it well um, because other, otherwise it really does show. By day three or day four, you're actually doing damage to your brand because everyone looks like they're fed up. It's such a great point.
0: Trade show fatigue, it's like one of the things as you say you get to that final day and everybody's shoulders are just dropping and it's you know, so important to get that fresh blood in for that that last day and, and get them excited so it's been fascinating talking to you Um i've really enjoyed it and um been inspired again by stuff that you said so daniel if people want to find you and uh talk to you where's the best places for them to get in touch
1: um so all the books on amazon um uh, i'm very active, too active on social media, Twitter and Instagram and that sort of thing and LinkedIn. Um, so at Daniel Priestley, uh, you'll find me uh, there. Or you can connect with us through our website, dent.global. It's one of those funky URLs. It's not a .com, <laughs> it's it's dent.global. Uh, you can check out our research and our papers and, and all that sort of stuff. We'll get in touch.
0: Brilliant. And if anybody missed those details and uh, wants Daniel's information, then... Um, Give us a shout. And the scorecard that is on my website is a brilliant thing to do as a kickoff just to see how influential you are. And if you are in a um, marital entrepreneurship business like we are, it's very interesting when your husband does it and gets widely different results. So, that's so um, yeah, do that one over a bottle of wine sometimes. So. Nice. So Daniel, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much um, for our listeners today. We really appreciate it. And good luck with everything we're doing in the future. My
1: pleasure. Cheers.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel and I thought there was loads of good information in there and actually as a result of that conversation we are going to uh, one of Daniel's workshops on Friday so no doubt you will be hearing about that either via the blog or via a podcast in the next couple of weeks to let you know how we're getting on being our own people of influence within our industry. Coming up on the next podcast in two weeks time we have a great conversation again with uh, Andy Higginbotham from GES who will be talking to us about stand design and some of the hints and tips and tricks that he's learned over many years working in the industry and looking at how you scale up and scale down and how you can make little tweaks to your stand to make it more effective so if you're thinking about planning your stand space or space for the upcoming trade show season that's definitely one not to miss. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you to the flurry of subscribers we have had to the newsletter over the last couple of weeks. It has been brilliant having you all join us. Um, So that goes out every fortnight and gives you all the latest news and information of what we're up to, but also hopefully some more insight on things that are happening in the world of exhibitions. So if you would also like to be a subscriber to that newsletter, head over to the website at www.inspiringexhibitors.com and you can sign up there. And we are also still looking out for participants to our research project, which kicks kicks off in a couple of weeks. We have quite a few hundred people already lined up to participate, but if you would like to be part of it, then get in touch with us in the usual way and we will add you to the list. A couple of weeks left for you to let us know that you want to be involved, and then we'll start sending out the first survey uh, in the middle of September, probably, and we are looking for uh, industry predictions for 2025 so what do we think is going to change in the next five years in the exhibition industry so if you want to get involved do you get in touch as always we love hearing your feedback about what's going on in your world of exhibitions so keep sending us your photos and information about what's going well for you but also your challenges where you could do with a little bit of help that's all from us today on the show so have a great couple of weeks and we look forward to you joining us again for the next episode happy exhibitioning Hop over now to inspiringexhibitors.com to subscribe to our newsletters, blogs and future podcasts, keeping you up to date with industry insight. While there, you can also find out more about our new book, The Exhibitionist, Inspiring Trade Show Excellence. Once again, thank you for listening.